Welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, a podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business and economics. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scollin. And I'm Sarah Britnica. So Sarah, we got new data yesterday on uh, home sales in Canada. Home sales in January were the lowest for the month since 2009, down 37% compared with a year ago. And this is something that I guess we're seeing across the market of just kind of this weird frozen market where people aren't putting their homes up for sale and nobody's buying them and the prices just seem to fall every month. But at the same time, uh, it's not really cheaper for people to get a home in real terms because interest rates have made borrowing so much more expensive. Not to mention on the development side, right? We're not exactly seeing encouraging data out of there. Um, you know, the uh, number of housing starts, I think, are, you know, 100, 200,000 uh, homes short annually than, you know, we need by different projections to uh, be able to meet, you know, demand. And, you know, we're seeing some builders also kind of going under because they're feeling the the pressure from, from interest rates. So kind of all around, it looks pretty dire. But uh, I think we're going to unpack some of that today. Yeah, really strange market difficult to to understand and they're kind of in a holding pattern i guess as we wait to see what happens with interest rates you know the bank of canada said that conditionally they're not going to go up but they've said that before so we'll see what actually happens and uh, meanwhile the fed is continuing to raise their rates which drives a lot of the dynamics in our market as well so a lot to unpack as you said and we've got a really great guest on to do it with today uh, Daniel Foch is a real estate analyst, uh, realtor, and the host of the Canadian Real Estate Investment Podcast, and he's here to break it all down for us. Daniel, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I've really enjoyed listening to your guys' show so far, so I'm, I was uh, pretty thrilled when you reached out. So we're, we're so excited to have you on to talk about the housing market, which is in a pretty strange place right now. So how are you looking at it as an investor, and what are you seeing on the ground? Yeah, I think as a real estate investor, the big question is, is there still risk in the market? A lot of the problems that we're seeing investors, property owners facing right now are a result of two things. Number one is prices declining and creating a negative equity position. And number two is capital costs increasing and creating a uh, you know monthly deficit, let's call it. So costs are making the, the investments unviable on a monthly basis. And so... You know, I know a lot of people want to know, are we close to the bottom? Um, the I think that the, the big thing is it doesn't really matter whether or not we're close to the bottom. I think it matters whether or not we're close to the top. And, and we know that the top is behind us. And we know from history how the Canadian market, uh, you know, it behaved in response to a big increase in credit costs in the past. You know, we have examples of this in 1981. We have examples of this in 1989. And even in 2017, when interest rates and um, monetary, or sorry, uh, government policy changed the way that we could interact with the real estate asset, we saw prices come down as a result of that worse than they did today in some cases, in, in, depending on the market. So talking about what happened in um, 2017, I mean, I mean, kind of walking through maybe from that point, until now, I mean, what has been the reason for government intervention? When you talk about the stress tests, I imagine that wasn't to increase housing affordability. But what was the reason that the, that the government did that? 
I think the objective was really to try and level the playing field and also take out some of the risk in the market from, you know, what we're seeing happening today. People were being stress tested at 2% higher than the rate that they were actually qualifying for. And now we've seen rate, you know, now we're actually seeing the impacts of that. Can we withstand a, you know, 2% increase or 200 basis point increase in, in our borrowing rate? Well, on paper, hopefully people could have. And that was sort of the objective of the policy. Now we're starting to see the real-time ramifications of that. And it's turning out that, you know, some people can't. And th- there's reasons for that. Some of it was circumvention, you know, fraud for shelter, is, uh, not uncommon. Um, co-signing till you qualify. Like most most millennial homebuyers, you know, they, in the in major markets, GTA in Toronto, had to get a parent to co-sign just to make their their mortgage application sufficient to qualify for what the price they needed. So if investors now are looking at the level of risk and the, you know, something like the stress test was put in place um, to maybe reduce risk for for people, at what point in your view did the Canadian housing market go from being pretty safe to a market that had a high level of risk factored in? I think as soon as you get to a point where the market, the average investment in the market only makes sense with capital appreciation it doesn't make sense as a real investment, then you get to a market where it's purely speculative. And we were in that state for the better part of two mm-hmm. years during COVID. And it, that that is a really direct consequence of having net negative interest rates. We had interest rates that were negative 5%. Like it was it was the, the financially smart thing to do to go lever up and buy stuff because you could borrow money for next to nothing. And now you you know you come out of that into one of the fastest i think actually the fastest increase in credit costs from a magnitude perspective so if you look at like the original um overnight rate of 0.25% now we're in the fives now we've never seen rates magnitude that are increase in that that uh number of times ever before the 80s would have been the, the last time and we know what happened in the early 80s in the housing market we know what happened in the early 90s in the housing market um, so when you saw that big run up, it was pure speculation. The only reason that people would have an incentive to buy is because they felt the price was going to continue to go up. And that really is a hallmark of what you would call a real estate bubble. And now we're starting to see what it ha- looks like on the other side of that, which is the recoil. Prices really come down at the same pace that they went up and in, in, in to the same magnitude once they detach from that sort of long-term average trend line. So if you're to draw a long-term average trend line, look at how far it deviated from that. And it's likely going to get back to that long-term average trend line. The The correction is about as severe as how, how quickly it went up. Uh, and so that would vary on a market-by-market basis. Like, like Toronto is really not doing well right now, but some markets that only saw you know 10% increases year over year are, are doing fine. They barely are, are feeling it. Yeah, I mean, the couple of people who bought at the peak are really not you know, they're, they're kind of bummed about it, I'm sure. And, and that sucks. But, you know, all of our parents' generation went through this in 1989 and they all survived and most of them still own their homes. And there was mineral ba- minimal bankruptcies. And most of them, if they did go bankrupt, you know, 20 years have elapsed since then and everybody's okay. And, you know, the question becomes, do we end up with a si- similar secular phenomena that happened for, as a result of the 90s where, I don't know about you guys, but you know, if I talk to a lot of people in the in the baby boomer generation, many of them are afraid of investing in real estate. 
then Bitcoin's like that right now. Like you can't find somebody who wants to, well, now that prices are coming up a little bit, but you know, it's hard to find somebody who wants to go touch certain investments, asset classes right now. Are we going to see that phenomenon happen in Canadian real estate? Or will we see this as kind of a, you know, once in a lifetime buying opportunity and people are, are rushing all of the people who were waiting on the sidelines, feeling marginalized for the last little bit, are they going to be rushing back in? I mean, I think it's, it's really a guessing game at that point. Hmm. I mean, where do you see prices going in the next year or two? A lot of the the bubble, I guess, if you want to call it that, seems to have already deflated a bit. But is there much further to go? Or how do you see that playing out? I think it really depends on the path of mon- monetary policy. It, it, like, There's really no way to, you know, to put it any other way. Like We've seen direct impacts of credit cost increases. And it, it, the only thing that can that could change that is if OSFI gets rid of B20, the stress test, which they've made clear isn't going to happen. Hmm. You know, so we're at a point that we're kind of at the mercy of the Fed, the Federal Reserve in the States, not even not even the Bank of Canada, because the Fed is really, you know, they're trying to protect reserve currency status. We just saw what happened in the Canadian bond market as a result of you know, the US CPI numbers, bond yields are now in the four, they, they peaked in the fours and they're going to stay in the mid to high threes. And and so, you know, because fixed rates are lower than variable rates right now, what the Bank of Canada does doesn't really matter because nobody, the rational consumer wants to maximize the borrowing power. So they're always going with the lower rate. And so we're really more at the mercy of the government of Canada five-year bond yield curve, because that's what those interest rates are based on rather than the Bank of Canada's overnight rate. And so the longer time under tension that we have with that bond yield in the 3 or 4% range, the more we start to see fixed interest rates increase and further erosion of borrowing power. So I would say, to answer your question, because that was kind of long-winded, but the, the answer is prices are likely going to continue to go down based on all of those assumptions unless something major happens. If, if you look at a long-term trend line, like in five to 10 years, it's going to look mostly flat for the next two years. Like we saw a big down leg as the markets almost were acting a little bit like sophisticated. Toronto and Vancouver were almost trying to price in rate hikes when that, when they first happened. All of a sudden, the Bank of Canada called everybody's bluff and the housing market was like, okay, they're, they're actually going to do rate hikes now. Let's just stop bidding insanely. And prices came off 10, 15%. And they've kind of just stayed there. Like they, they came off the, the big magnitude drop was in three months. And then it's kind of just bounced along, let's call it the bottom since then. I think you'll see a, a, a slower grinding down as you start to see, you know, financial stress as a result of increased rate hikes. Power of sales are on a huge uptrend right now. And, you know, over the next six to 12 months, kind of a lot of the, the pain comes out in the wash. And then. But it, I don't think it's. I don't think we have another major down leg. Maybe if we see a, a much worse recession than is anticipated, that was kind of the only scenario that I could imagine that would be a, a big, big down leg. But I think you know most economists are calling for a relatively moderate recession in in Canada. So um, I think down is my so, is my answer. But uh, but down, but kind of side, like you know over the long term, it look more flat, right? I guess when you think about the trajectory of price, 
you know, how much of it is investors basically saying these prices are crazy. I can get better yield through, you know, T-bills or bonds or whatever. And how much of it is distressed sellers who, for whatever reason, can no longer cover mortgage costs that have ballooned because of rates going up? Like, how, do, how are those factors interacting at this point in the market? I think you end up with a, a situation, it's really basic economics, so you know, supply and demand. So you have the, the demand side, so let's say investors who are maybe putting their money into GICs because they can get the same rate of return, like you're saying, that they would if they were to put it into investment property. And you put that beside the supply side where you are starting to see some distress and you're starting to see some people selling and maybe selling to try and mitigate losses or racing to the exit. And if you, and right now we're still in a pretty balanced market. So you don't necessarily get to the position that there is a, you know, you don't end up with major reductions in price until we're in a buyer's market. And inventory has been very tight. Sellers are really holding on. Canadians love doing whatever they can to pay their mortgages. It's like this, you know, like patriotic duty that we have to to service our debt. And so <laughs> I don't think, you know, people are really trying to make it work. And, and they're thinking, okay, if we can hold on for two years, three years, then we, we will. And hopefully things will be better than maybe rates will come down and we can refinance and get into a better cash position. Um, and, and then, you know, you look at, the same thing on the demand side. Well, I think demand is actually starting to kind of pick up. And there's one major reason for this is because, you know, the a lot of more sophisticated investors, the ones who might say, yeah, I can go get a better rate of return elsewhere, are realizing that there is upside now. So as you get closer to the bottom, there's more upside in the price above you and less downside risk in, in the price below you. You know, a lot of people, as they saw prices rising, were fearful that there was all risk below you and very little upside above you for, on the speculative side or on the capital appreciation side. You combine that with, uh, so you have prices now coming down, but you also have rents, which is sort of the income element of an investment. And, and now let's call it a real investment, like you're buying something that is a, a cash flowing asset or a, a yielding asset, not a speculative vehicle, because I think I would call speculators and investors very different things. Um, Rents are increasing. A lot of people are thinking, oh, we're going to hit record immigration targets for the next several years. And I would agree with that. I think we're capable of doing that as a country. But we know that immigrants don't buy houses immediately. They need jobs. They need financial stability. They need to decide what city they want to live in. And to do that, they rent. And so we have this massive upward pressure on rents in Canada from immigration, from foreign students, from temporary workers. And so the, the income element of the real estate investment is going up and the price element of the real estate investment is going down. The only piece that really makes that bad is the capital cost. And so we're starting to see investors really entering the market in a meaningful way, looking for creative structure. You're starting to see a lot of sellers offering vendor take back mortgages as an example. And th these are all themes that you started to see in, in the 1990s. So I think that we're we're in a balanced market and I think we could stay there unless unless I'm missing something and there is a really, really meaningful supply flood that could happen as a result of financial stress. Um, I, I think we'll probably stay in a balanced market for most of the year and and prices will cut. That's why it'll it'll really take time for them to kind of move down. I, I know we're probably all ready to just run into the supply kind of side of this discussion, but before we get there, I um, did want to talk about 
how the price trajectory is kind of changing if you're looking at different markets. So you mentioned that some are doing better than others. How is this playing out right in, you know, the GTA versus PEI versus, you know, the prairies? What's like the full view of of, of Canada right now when it comes to real estate? Yeah. So Crea Stats, the Canadian Real Estate Association, uh, they just came out on February 15th. Um, and and basically the same this the story has been similar for the past several years. You know, where you're seeing major volatility, whether it's up or down, is in, you know, the the hotter markets in Canada. So Vancouver, the lower mainland, and greater Toronto area, and much of Ontario actually as a result of the sort of uh, work from home phenomena. You started to see it happening in some markets like Halifax, Calgary, uh, Moncton, as an example, saw a pretty big run up year over year last year. But the the big difference is the base level of price in those markets was so much more accessible to the average buyer. And if you look at price to income in those markets, so what the average person can make as a wage earner in, in each of those cities versus what it would cost to buy a home, there it didn't require a ton of debt for people to, to go and purchase a house in those cities. And that's why a lot of people moved there. They were dry, driving or flying until they qualified. And so what happened was those markets became less credit dependent. Moncton, as an example, like, you know, the average house price is in the 400,000s and, you know, the average salary is not that far off of what it is in, in the city of Toronto. And so people weren't levering up, let's say, to buy. So there's not a ton of credit exposure. And so as credit costs increase, they're not as, as directly impacted as what happened in in Toronto, where as prices started to increase in Toronto, you had to go get more leverage to buy. And in order to do that, you were, I mean, we saw this this period of time based on the CMHC stats, Q3 of uh, 2021, there, something like, or sorry, was, yeah, yeah, Q3 of 2021, Q4 of 2021, and then Q1 uh, of 2022, something like 60% of new mortgage originations were variable rates. So you have all of these buyers who are using the variable rate because it's like 1.5% and they can go, I, this is when I, the, where the stress test part confuses me because we know that those rates can go up at any time and buyers were buying with variable rates at super low and because they could, it would allow them to qualify for like three times as much. That's a, that's a bit hyperbolic, but twi- you know, significantly more, 20 to 30% more uh, debt than they could have. And so they were taking on more debt. They were using the variable rate, the lower interest rate, the higher risk interest rate to do that. And now as that cost goes up, we start to see the stress happen. We start to see you know people selling to mitigate losses, et cetera. And that's that's kind of like so so to answer the question, Toronto, Vancouver really saw the the bigger declines. Um, a lot of submarkets, Southwestern Ontario is pretty bad, 15 to 20% declines on the Korea stats, like H- HPI, which is a house price index, which is a little bit of an understated metric. Toronto's kind of, the GTA is kind of same thing, 15 to 20%. Um, Ottawa, Kingston, 10 to 15%. Cottage country, 10 to 15%. Uh, then you get to like the East Coast, they're up. They're up barely, but they're up like 2 to 5%. Quebec down slightly. The prairies are up, uh, except for Edmonton, I think, but Calgary's up like 5%. Saskatoon's up 2%. Most of Saskatchewan's up about 2%. And so a lot of it becomes that these, these markets that were more well-priced and, and less credit sensitive fared fine. They saw slight bumps in price and then they saw slight recoils, uh, uh, you know, and so it's really just that uh, the rebound 
typically correlated very directly to what the run-up was, and those markets didn't detach from fundamentals too severely. You mentioned the people who took out, you know, all these people taking out uh, variable mortgages at 1.5% with huge leverage. Um, first of all, a, an ignorant question from a renter. When you do that, do you get stress test? Is your stress test at 1.5% plus 2% or is it at the going fixed rate plus 2%? How do they test you there? So it's at the uh, the higher of either 5% or the contract rate plus 2%. So until this time last year, or no, until probably Q3 of last, Q2 of last year, everybody was just being stress tested at 5%, which is, you know, most people qualify for decent stuff now. Now we're, people are being stress tested at, you know, what your posted fixed rates are in the fives now. So, you know, posted rate plus 2%, people are being stress tested at like seven and a half or 8%. So it's easy to see where the buying power just disappears because that's, that's a reduction of 30% in, in your borrowing. Yeah, no, totally. And then those people who, I can imagine if you did take out a big variable mortgage at one and a half, you know, sure, you passed the 5% stress test, but there's a good chance that you're now above that 5% level, right? You've already exceeded the level that you got tested at. So I guess why aren't we seeing like waves of people defaulting on their mortgage? Is that something that is going to come down the road that we should be concerned about? Or are they somehow hanging on through other means? I think people are just getting by there. You know, you really only have to pay your mortgage once a year or once a month and 12 times a year. And so people can figure out a way to scrape together things. You know, what the stress test doesn't account for as well is 30% increase year over year in cost of living, things like that. And so there are other, yeah. you know, stress factors that are happening in households. And, and I think people are just, they're diving into savings, they're going into different credit products, they're asking mom and dad for help. They're doing whatever they can to, to get by because I think a lot of people, and, and it's funny, you know, one of my favorite real estate investors, and we talk about a lot, him a lot on our podcast, Sam Zell, he had this thing, you know, stay alive till 95 in the 90s during that recession, which was horrible to real estate. Like it was one of the worst periods of, of real estate in modern history. And I think it's kind of the same phenomenon right now that it's just stay alive till 2025. I think if we can get back to a, you know, a, a normal market with normal interest rates, if they're even if they're in the threes or fours, not the fives or sixes. And then I, I think a lot of people have this mentality that they're just going to suffer for a bit. And they're gonna, and everything will be okay. And they're probably not wrong. Where that really starts to get impacted is when we start to see the second order effects of everybody taking all of their money and putting it towards debt service, and not being out spending in the economy. And you know, so to me, the, the real short opportunity maybe in the Canadian market is the Canadian dollar, or you know, some of your retailers or consumption, where everybody's spending all of their money on just basically getting by for two years, and the. You know, there's no money to go around to be distributed to, for for growth in the economy. Yeah, are you seeing uh, an uptick at all in those power of sale, like distressed sellers, uh, even if not at a, a enormous level yet? Are you seeing any of that uh, happening? Yeah, power of sales are up percentage wise massively. So, if I were to tell you the number, you'd be like, "This is crazy." I think it's up. I think we're now up two hundred and something percent of uh, you know in increase of the number of listings that are listed power of sale. And so, you know, for context, for anyone listening, the power of sale is when basically somebody's failed to pay their mortgage and the bank goes to take back the property and, and sell it. And 
this, it's still such a small, like it's less than 1% of the total supply in the market. So it's not, it's not meaningful by any means, but it's, mm. you know, when you hear the magnitude of increase, cause we're seeing like 20 or 30 power of sales a month in, you know, this time last year and we were seeing, and now we're seeing 60 or 70, you know, you see thousands of listings in a month in, in the GTA. So it's not like, it's not massive. I think it's going to, it's going to, it'll probably peak in, you know, the next two quarters. And then I think most of that, that pain, the supply is going to kind of get washed out. And I think when, if, you know, if we see a, another bit of a down leg on price as a result of that distress selling and whatever else is happening, you could start to see a bit of a, r- a race to the exit. Like I think the summer could be a bit ugly. I think cottage country is one of those markets. that's a little bit concerning because those are very much liquidity traps. Like they cost people money every month and they're t- historically a uh, very slow selling product. You know, they, they used to sell, it used to take a hundred days to sell a cottage. And at the beginning of COVID, cause nobody could travel, it took two, two weeks. So that's, you know, those are the ones I'm watching closely right now is where are we seeing an uptick in distress selling? And are we seeing, um, you know, problems in the cottage country market? I think are the two I'm watching very closely. As far as what we should be watching when it comes to uh, pricing, uh, I guess with inputs too, I mean, the formula that people expected uh, was that high interest rates would kind of tamp down on pricing and increase affordability and every, you know, everything would restabilize and, you know, things would just be good. And then, you know, you mentioned here how there's the impact of, of, of bonds on pricing. You're talking about how the how what the Fed does has an outsized impact on Canada as well. So what should people be watching in terms of how the prices will continue to fluctuate? I think if you look back at, you know, National Bank, actually, um, we cover this um, every quarter. They release, a, um, it's called the Housing Affordability Monitor. And on the front page of it, in the bottom left-hand quarter, corner, um, it shows, you know, the housing affordability, which is mortgage payment as a percentage of income over the past, like, 30 years. And we've now reached, and this is going to be great for millennials who, you know, want to kind of stick it to boomers. We've reached housing affordability as worse than the 1980s and the 1990s. So the peaks of 81 and 89, when interest rates mm-hmm. were at 18%, housing is less affordable today than that period of time. And so, you know, I look at what, if you look at those last peaks immediately thereafter, you see a similar thing like that we're talking about with house prices. There is a recoil in affordability. There has to be a, you know, a, a similar, effect to the down on price. And right now, interest rates have still, the increases in interest rates have still outpaced how price can make affordability better. And so there's a, a bit of a battling of those effects. And that's what tells me that I think we, we really only have three levers that can tell uh, or that can change affordability. Number one is income, which we know, you know, that the Bank of Canada has made it an objective to inc- or to, dre- to decrease wages or to decrease um, employment as a part of the, uh, you know, efforts to reduce inflation and get it back to the kind of the neutral range. So we let's just say that one's not going up anytime soon. So that's not going to help affordability. We know interest rates are the next piece and price is the final piece. And interest rates, it looks like now, based on what the market's pricing in, is that we'll probably see rates, you know, hold, maybe continue moving up now this year based on what the, you know, the, the, I guess the, um, yield inversion curves are suggesting and, and the, and the five years pricing in. And if that's the case, then, you know, we're going to have to see, uh, you know, 
as I mentioned, when we started the discussion about price, prices slowly grind down. And then eventually, I think you start to see, okay, the economy's beaten up enough. The central bank says, look, let's start easing this pressure a little bit. And they start reducing rates. And, you know, that comes in a period of probably deflation in construction costs, deflation in a lot of other, not sorry, not deflation, disinflation. So an easing of inflation. And, and then, you know, we start to try and fire up the economy a little bit more by getting cheap money back into it. And I think once you get, there's a period of time there that where prices have come down and rates have come down, that affordability kind of gets, hits a bottom again. And that's, you usually stay on that for a while. Like if you look at the past housing cycles, 1981, 1989 being exceptional examples. And we, we covered these exhaustively on episode one of our podcast, uh, the Canadian real estate investor podcast, but we, you know, there's a huge down leg. And then the market basically trades sideways for like three years, like 1981, it took six years to get back to that peak price. 1989, it took 12 years to get back to the the peak. So 1989 until 2002 or 2003, sorry, 13 years. So, and then if you were to adjust that for inflation, this is the crazy part. If you adjust that for inflation, because that was a high inflationary period, it took until 2012 to get back to the real house prices. So recovery takes a long time. And I think that's the piece that people are discounting when they think prices are binary, right? Affordability is either going down or up. Well, no, the market can trade sideways for a very long period of time. And that's actually a healthy thing. That's a good thing. That's what you want to see. That allows people to buy houses with home inspections and, you know, go to the right mortgage lender and not get caught between buying and selling, you know, list their house and buy a house at the same time. Those are good things. It's interesting how you talk about paying your mortgage as being almost a patriotic duty as a Canadian. And that certainly seems true. And I wonder if you think that that almost like a belief in Canadian real estate is part of or a big part of why we're going to, I guess, like ultimately see a recovery or if that will kind of help speed things up too as people holding on to, to to real estate and holding on to that belief that it's a it's one of the most valuable assets that you can hold in Canada. I think so. I think that the reality is we know there are more people that want to live in Canadian houses than there are Canadian houses and that will likely perpetuate unless we see some major political missteps or some sort of secular shift uh, around the, the perspective of Canada globally. And so I, th- I think that a lot of Canadians really do want, it's, it's a fundamental, it's kind of like the U S as well. It's part of the Canadian dream to own a home. And, and I guess the question becomes, you know, do we, and I, when I think about this as an investor is, are we heading more towards a place like the U S which does now have a lower home ownership rate than us or a place like Germany that has a significantly lower home ownership rate, or, you know, some of these, you, you, you know, um, more socialist utopian kind of like countries in, in Europe where they have significantly low homeownership rates. Um, and are we heading towards, you know, will be a renter's economy? Is that what the final stage of housing capitalism looks like? Or, or are Canadians going to defend against that and really have that, that firm belief in, in homeownership? And I don't know, but you know, data would tell me that we are moving a little bit more towards the renter side. And I think that, you know, what you're trying to say is correct. Like, I think Canadians really do want to hold on to home ownership being one of those Canadian dreams. A lot of people move to a place like this to to do that and to pay a mortgage and use that as their nest egg and accumulate wealth through real estate and all of those things. And so I think if we start to to get away from that, you get to, you know, you look at a place like Europe where it's a low home ownership rate. I mean, realtors basically don't exist in that, you know, Canada has like the highest 
number of realtors per capita in the world. It's like thir- residential investment is like 13% of our GDP, right? <laughs> like that's uh, real estate commissions and renovations is, is re- residential investment. So, I mean, the reality is if, if we're not like it, if we're not buying and selling real estate, like right now, volumes are down like 30% nationally, but compared to what they were this time last year, 37%, I think actually based on Korea stats yesterday, that's a 30% reduction, 37% reduction in a big portion of our GDP. So we also have to get back to the national sport of buying and selling houses with one another and, and sort of like the national duty of, of buying houses and paying our mortgages, I think. Like it's, it, our economy kind of depends on this a little bit, which is scary thought. Yeah. One thing you said there uh, had me just wondering, how bad has this downturn been for realtors? Very bad. No, nobody will, no realtors will tell you that. Like, but I, I, look, I mean, the reality is this time, if I, if, if I, if nothing changes, if I make no changes to my business, I do the same thing that I did last year. I'll make half of the income likely that I made last year because there's half of the, like prices are down significantly and volume is down significantly in the GTA, you know, and realtors are every month. They're like, Oh, I can feel it heating up and, and whatever. And anecdotally, that's great. If you got lots of buyers, like there is a lot of activity right now. People are shopping. We're seeing multiple offers in the GTA, but there, there's still 30% reduction, 40% reduction in the number. Like the January of 2023 was the slowest January we've seen in 14 years or something in the Canadian real estate or on the Korea stats, other than mm. the COVID, other than the COVID lockdown, or this was the, this January was the slowest January in, in 14 years and the slowest month since the, the lockdown, since like the entire country was locked down and people couldn't go out and that, like, that's the only data point where there was fewer houses. And, so that, and that goes back. If you look at 14 years, like the number of houses was also significantly lower, right? 10, 15% lower than it was. So we're at like, this is crippling levels of volume for my profession. And I actually think that's a good thing. I think you do need to see a little bit of a weeding out of the week. I think we need to see a little bit of Darwinism take place. People hate realtors. People hate like the, pra- the you know, like they, they think that there's a lot of sketchy practice. They think that they're responsible for a lot of that run up. And, and there's a lot of negative sentiment towards that. And I think that hopefully we'll see that kind of, this is like a nature is healing phenomena that this low volume maybe helps fill mm-hmm. some of those job vacancies that, uh, that we've seen. And, uh, but also, <laughs> but also I think, you know, like it, I think it'll, it'll make for a better real estate market in during the recovery phase. I, I don't I, hate realtors, but I don't love how many emails I got in early 2022 about how it was a perfect buying opportunity. It's always the right. perfect time to buy. GTA. Yeah. Uh, what about builders? How are you seeing them respond? Builders and developers, how are they responding to the current market market uh, conditions, and I guess what are the implications of that for the future of supply? Which you know, apparently, we need to be building like a new home every minute to keep up with yeah. targets. Uh, does it seem like that's realistic? Yeah. So the only province that's actually capable, like from a resource perspective, is capable of building as many homes as they need is Alberta, uh, and that's from a CMHC report. So, so you know, outside of Alberta. The answer to that question is no, we'll never reach that. And so, you know, a lot of people would point to that eventually becoming excess supply or sorry, excess demand will, will always return. We'll never be in an excess supply situation. And I, I would gen- generally agree with that. I think, you know, you look at the introduction of Bill 23 in Ontario, basically making it so that you can fourplex or multiplex every home. 
that might have a meaningful impact on supply, especially over the, if over the next two years, a lot of people are feeling financially distressed, they might say, oh, I'm going to go put a basement suite in and, you know, ease the pr- pressure for a couple of years. Um, but I mean, large scale, if you think, you know, builders, so there's, there's two different ways to look at this. So the more agile supply is ground-based detached houses. So you can sell a detached house or pre-sell a detached house and then go build, you know, typically not a lot of engineering or whatever needs to go into it, go build it. You could start maybe within the next three weeks and, and deliver it to the, the customer in a year. And, and so those have been there. You can see the agility in their pricing response. Prices have come down. You've seen, you know, you're hearing protests of the biggest home builder in, in North America, Mattamy. Um, people are protesting that they reduce their prices on these certain homes because now it's trapped buyers who bought at higher prices. They're not going to appraise. Um, so that's a challenge. That's a headwind for, for building. But the, the uh, you know, detached houses, they have that agility to, to respond to prices and they have the agility to respond to um, it changes in the, in the cost structure. So construction costs are starting to come down a little bit. They're, they're disinflating and that was a big theme. The economics of building were horrible for the last two years because couldn't get trades and, and it was really expensive to get materials, supply chain disruptions, et cetera. Moving over to high rise, which is a sort of the other way to look at it is you have basically projects that sell five, four to six years earlier than they are, are completed. And so builders in a lot of cases would start to price in the gains of that, you know, and they'd sell at future values. And so in those, we have a lot of, you know, question marks. And you, you, you know, you mentioned in the, in the notes, this developer in Vancouver who, you know, just went under with $700 million in debt. And we saw, you know, something happen at Crest, Crestford in Toronto, not probably a smaller scale, but Crestford went through something similar, I think just before COVID. These are, I, I don't think that this is going to be the last time we hear about something like this happening. And what you're starting to see this is the same as what happens in small cap real estate and small cap investment is people who got really excited, speculated a little bit too much, took on too much leverage and tried to scale too quickly during a very, very frenzied period of time are now feeling heavily exposed. Land loans, like if you go buy land and you put a a 50% loan to value mortgage on it, so you 50% leverage, um, that's a variable interest rate. And so you talk about people getting squeezed on, you know, variable interest rates on their houses. Now think about people who are owning $50 million development sites that they owe 25 million on and their capital costs just tripled on a monthly basis. And then that those, those interest payments are in the millions. Um, so what you're starting to see happen is a lot of the bigger builders like the Mattamies of the world or, you know, that, that there's probably this Pareto principle in the, you know, in the real estate or the construction home building space where there's, you know, distribution of, let's say 20 players at the top and then hundreds below. A lot of those top players have been patient. They've been through market cycles. They're, they're smart, they're more calculated and they have been waiting and they now are starting to go and approach some of these more distressed owners in the mid market who are in more speculative positions and they needed to be, or they felt they needed to be to, to get to that next level. And they're starting to try and structure deals. They're saying, look, you got a good site. You're in a bad position. You know, let us help you. We'll come in, we'll build and or we'll build the project out for you. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll split the profits or whatever. Or, you know, we, at least you won't take a loss or you'll take a lower loss than you might have. And, and so 
Um, you know, to answer the question on the supply side, you are seeing a lot of cancellation and delaying of projects because the economics just sucked. Um, and so that could, again, it could eventually contribute to, you know, on a lag in probably two to three years, we are in an even bigger excess demand situation than we have been historically. We're looking at record completions likely this year. We saw close to record completions last year. So supply is pretty big, you know, it, it, timing wise kind of sucks based on, on for the market. But I think there will be a gap in supply sometime over the next three to four years where a lot of projects that should have been viable today weren't and get pushed to next year or two years out. And that could, I think that that will kind of aid in us finding the bottom on the recovery piece. If, you know, we continue seeing record immigration and stop seeing supply added. Okay. This obviously sounds very bad because we need builders to fix the supply problem. And I, I just wonder how you think about the, the, the new data that came out about the current kind of constructions on new residential properties or housing starts. So I think we're sitting at uh, 215,000 as of last month, down 13% from December. Um, but the, you know, the government's target is to build 350,000 new homes this year. And then CMHC says we actually need closer to 580,000 homes built this year. So how are we to interpret those numbers and, and particularly the gap in those numbers, depending on who you're asking? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I think that the reality is, you know, we one other way to think about this and bill 23 in ontario which is basically again it's the proposal that people can easily add um, multiple units to an existing home the existing square footage i think one of the ways to think about this is also in the the disparity in supply or the disconnect in supply so we're basically building two types of housing right now we're building tiny condos and we're building massive houses so mcmansions and shoe boxes and so you have a bunch of small units that are, I would say, you know, think about supply maybe on a per square foot basis or on a number of bedroom basis, because that's the point that we've gotten to in our housing crisis. People are in these McMansions now making these um, DIY density concepts where basically every bedroom, they're, they're running rooming houses out of these and there's a common area. And to be honest, it's a more comfortable way of living than for, for many people than a small condo in the city. Um, you so and builders are even building in response to this. So they're building four bedroom homes. Every bedroom has an ensuite. They all have um, heavy electrical, so you can run like a you know mini fridge if, in your room if you want. Um, they're big bedrooms, so people can kind of like have their own living space there. And then they all have four car parking. And you and you go through these subdivisions and you look. There's four cars in all the driveways. Cars parked all over the streets. Like these are homes that are occupied by adults uh, and, and you know all adults, no kids. And and you know, the, 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 similarly, the StatsCan data came out that there's two, the two biggest, uh, fastest growing household sizes in Canada are one. And then the fastest growing household size or household type in Canada is room, rooming, uh, roommates, right? Roommate housing arrangements. So this is a, this is how consumers mm -hmm. respond to the failures that the government has done. And I think that that's just like my, answer to your question is we're just going to see that continue and it'll be exacerbated and you're going to see a as a result of financial stress on a lot of these you know houses you're going to start to see people saying oh i'm going to rent out a bedroom or you know they're going to rent out the basement or whatever it is and i think we'll just continue to see an increase in that that diy density is what i call it until the government does something to fix this problem which i to be honest with you i've completely given up on the idea that they ever will. I, I actually don't think our government wants to have affordable housing in Canada. 
As an investor, what are the um, what are some of the big macro data points that you're looking at to inform your view of how things are going to develop over the next few months, like interest rates, inflation, that sort of thing? Yeah, I think those are really the the two major ones. I think you know I'm of the perspective, and I think most people are of the of the perspective. People buy real estate because they want prices to grow to go up. Like realistically, you know, you should be buying them because they're a yielding asset, and we know that the yields will likely continue to grow because we're seeing, you know, more immigration into Canada and rents are climbing and they're going to continue to climb. Maybe they've tapped out a little bit because we're starting to see, you know, recession probably uh, over the next little bit. But I, you know, if we just focus on price and the housing market, um, prices likely aren't going to go up until interest rates stop going up. And interest rates aren't going to stop going up until inflation starts coming down. And so we're kind of just at the beginning of that that domino effect. So inflation is rolling over. And once we start seeing inflation actually looking decent, then we can start seeing interest rates easing. And then I think, you know, I don't like, in order to get back to January of 2022 or February of 2022, that frenzy, you need 0.25% overnight rate. Let's just accept that we're never going to see that again. So if rates come back to three and a half percent, you kind of get back on that long-term growth trajectory of the Canadian housing market, which is 6.11% annual growth. That's a great return, especially when you account for the fact that houses are levered. Um, and so I'm looking at pretty much just on the, on the, you know, capital cost side, inflation and interest rates. And then on the demand side and the, the, um, rent side can we will we see more upside in rents i'm looking at immigration primarily what about the fed um what happens if the bank of canada holds steady with interest rates as they as they promised earlier this year and then the fed decides to to hike in march well, how will that play out in in our housing market i guess it just uh creates a weakened canadian dollar um i don't think it really necessarily has a a major impact in our housing market unless we are too far behind and we have to catch up, which did happen in the 80s. And that created some, some you know, t- secondary problems when they really had to, to hike quickly to catch up to the, to, the, to the Fed. And a lot of that comes down to, are we, are we running the risk of imported inflation if we deviate too far from the Fed? So if, you know, if the Canadian dollar gets eroded to a point where we're buying goods in U.S., dollars and it inflation starts ramping up again because they're our largest trading partner. I mean, there's a, there's a real risk there. Um, I think the other, you know, the other component to think about there is, and, and this is something that I thought about early on was it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, for, if they, you know, if the Canadian or the bank of Canada it is of the perspective that the fed's going to cut eventually, um, and that maybe it's their last rate hike, um, then, they might le- be willing to lag a little bit to try and stimulate foreign investment or foreign direct investment. Um, the problem is that the, and this is where you, I don't know if you're seeing kind of like policy error or a battling in in um, policy, but you know we did just see the federal government completely ba- outright ban foreign ownership, basically, or foreign purchases. There are a lot of loopholes, but you know their objective was pretty clear. They don't want um, non-Canadians purchasing real estate for the next two years. So from a timing perspective, and maybe we're seeing a, a, a little bit of a, a battling in, you know, monetary and fiscal policy. Um, but I, 
that was kind of my original thought was they might want to have a weak in Canadian dollar because it might mean, you know, especially with a lot of things that are happening ge- geopolitically right now, um, might, you know, a lot of people, you see a flight to quality, right? Or, you know, into, into Canada, just for people to want to have a safe haven to put their money. And now they can't do that. And, and so that's, I, I mean, it's an interesting thought process to, to evaluate. Okay. Well, I think we're at the end of our, our time with you, Dan. That was a great conversation. Thank you so much for doing that. If people want to uh, hear more from you, where can they find you online? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm probably most active on maybe Twitter, Instagram, but uh, I also do a, a twice a week podcast, uh, just purely about real estate investing. It's called the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. So that might be the best. I mean, just assuming most people listening to your podcast like podcasts, probably the best jumping off point to, to find me. So just look that up. It's usually kind of like we're, we're up there on the list with you guys in the, in the top in the business category. Usually we try our best to be. So I always appreciate it if, if people would check us out there. Yeah, I think you're still ahead of us. So we got some. We got. Some you guys had a good launch, though. I think you were. No, you launched in number one. It was great. I know, and it's been a steady drop since then. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that was a great conversation. Thank you for coming on. Appreciate my it. pleasure. Yeah. Okay, so a very interesting conversation with Dan. I'm not sure if I feel better or worse coming out of that. Would love to know your thoughts. But I think one thing that struck me in particular is kind of figuring out where we're falling on this timeline of a recovery, right? And Daniel painted an interesting picture of, you know, when we look back to 89, how kind of like the inflation adjusted recovery really took 12 years. And so being at the kind of the the, the, the beginning of that, I mean, it, it seems like we're not going to be uh, taking a step back from talking about housing anytime soon. Yeah. I mean, it puts it into perspective how these recoveries, you know, seem to take a decade or even longer sometimes to happen. I guess I would feel good if I was a someone who already owned a home and didn't have a huge mortgage on it, because it sounds to me, and this is kind of similar to other conversations we've had about housing, that we're never, <laughs> it's very unlikely that we're going to get into a uh, surplus of supply, barring some sort of dramatic change in in our market like that's just not not in the cards so you know a shortage means rising prices and if you already have that asset that's that's good news for you yeah it it really makes you think why was i spending my 90s learning how to walk versus like you know buying real estate and so we're in a very different situation right now and i think it's really shocking for us being millennials because i think we have kind of grown up Everyone around us kind of, you know, saying that real estate was like this sure thing. It was a thing that you did. It was an asset that only, you know, increased in value. And it was like your your, your ticket to retirement, basically. When Canadians look at real estate, they're looking oftentimes at their retirement. And so it seems like the ground is kind of shifting under us as far as what we think, um, you know, what we think investment looks like, what we think long-term security looks like because our real estate market is increasingly you know, becoming a bit more risky, as Daniel said, um, or just, you know, becoming out of reach for those, you know, who can't even enter it, right? Yeah. I mean, it was interesting to get his perspective on it as an investor as well, because, you know, for me and most people I know, we think of real estate as a consumption good, basically, right? Like it's something that you live in. Whereas investors are looking at this as like, okay, what sort of yield can I get on this? And it makes a lot of sense that when 
you know, the Fed has 5% interest rates and you can get T-bills, you know, that have better yield than real estate, of course, people are going to pile out of the market. And of course, that's going to mean that you get less supply coming online, which is going to push prices up uh, even more eventually down the road. And I guess the other thing that he mentioned, which is worrying, is that there's a lag in these things, right? You can't just instantly pull a new housing unit out of thin air. Like It takes years and years to get these things approved and built uh, before anyone can move into them. So there's going to be this lag period, even after rates come down, where the supply is is just not there um, until it catches up. It's interesting because we, we joked about the piece about us kind of moving beyond the point of people feeling like they need to, you know, own real estate and kind of living in these kind of Newman type community housing. And for those who don't know, um, Adam Newman, the, the, you know, the founder of WeWork, the disgraced founder of WeWork has now uh, is now pursuing a new venture called Flow, which is I think he's going to build, you know, rent, rent, rental properties that um, that he owns, but is going to kind of try to establish that community type feel, which in turn is going to, you know, I, I assume happily uh, make it so that people happily are kind of, you know, paying large sums to, to live there that might be comparable to a mortgage. And it's interesting because you're seeing kind of developments like that pop up in Toronto and pop up in Vancouver um, as far as kind of like these condominiums that are charging super high rents, um, building kind of on that community aspect because they're, you know, trying to replace, you know, the the type of whole feeling that I get when you, uh, when it comes to uh, owning a home, I guess. But what's your view on, on the future of, of housing through that lens? Well, I was surprised to learn about these DIY density projects that, yeah, Dan was talking about of like four people with in one big house in the suburbs, each with their own ensuite and like an outlet for a refrigerator. Well, we don't go to the suburbs, so we have no idea. Uh, <laughs> you're not supposed to tell people that. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I know. And I, it's true. I really have no idea. I always assume those places are just single family homes for people with uh, a bunch of money uh, and who get a ton of space for it. But no, it's actually like a lot of them are being built for, um, you know, multifamily dwellings or roommate style dwellings, uh, but not sort of the ones that you traditionally associate with having roommates where it's like living downtown. <laughs> I think Daniel kind of hit the nail on the head when he said, if government policy doesn't solve this problem, people are going to find, you know, solutions that maybe are not optimal, but is the best that they can do. It's interesting. It feels like the onus is really kind of just like falling on the, you know, people that want to be housed, right? I think Dan mentioned that, you know, when it comes to paying off mortgages, Canadians are going to just, you know, quote, figure it out. And that's probably, I anticipate, what we're getting from these conversations on housing is how people are going to approach most of the housing market for, you know, the next uh, few years, several years, is that people are just going to figure it out. And whether it is putting a huge chunk of your income towards your mortgage, whether it's putting a huge chunk towards your income, uh, towards rent to pay someone else's mortgage, or whether it's like changing your living situation to kind of go into these, you know, high density types of dwellings that are out in the suburbs, like people are just going to make it work. And um, because it, it, it seems like that just might be how it's going to, to play out. Yeah. One other question that I had coming out of that, which we should ask someone about at some point is, 
you know, what are the macro effects of having so much of our expenditures, household expenditures tied up in housing? Like Dan talked a little bit about how you see as rates go up and people struggle to continue to pay their mortgage, that that consumes spending that would otherwise be going into other things, right? So can you get a vicious cycle in the economy where rates go up, people have to pay more to cover their debts, that pulls spending out of the economy, that leads to uh, slower growth, a recession, which then you know, cuts into incomes, cuts into employment, makes it harder for people to pay their debt. Is there a risk of that sort of thing taking root here in an economy where we have become so dependent on residential investment? Yeah, I, I can't even fathom like the amount of growth that that would unlock, right? If people went from paying like 30 to 40% of their income towards housing, um, if they went to maybe like 20%, right, too. So Yeah, it's a huge um, figure. Yeah, definitely. Okay, well, another interesting episode on housing. It's always a winner, I think, when we cover this topic because there's so much to unpack in, in the Canadian housing market. But I think, is that a good place to leave it for today? I think so. All right, well, this has been another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. I'm Taylor Scullin. You can follow me on Twitter at Taylor Scullin. And I'm Sarah Bartnika. You can follow me on Twitter at Sarah Bartnika. And make sure to follow our guest's podcast as well, the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. You can find that wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, you'll probably enjoy our daily business newsletter. You can get that at readthepeak.com. And make sure to follow and subscribe to Free Lunch by the Peak wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week. Bye.